0: I think part of our work is to advance the conversation around substances generally, so that they're not being talked about in a different way. Because the policy result of that is we now see ourselves in a situation where we're going substance by substance, state by state, legalize or decrim depending on the substance. And it's this patchwork of policies that while does demonstrate progress, I think is not ultimately the solution to ending the drug war
1: hello and welcome to the history of drugs and society i'm your host eugene leventhal this week i got to speak to the honorable scott b cecil who is a city council member in mount rainier in maryland in addition to that scott also runs two podcasts of his own one is called prohibited which explores prohibition in various contexts and the other is called the outlaw report which is about cannabis policy and cannabis news in the dc area We start the conversation exploring what led Scott to the world of drug policy and activism in the first place. As part of that, we share some personal encounters with the criminal justice system and how that informed our own views on drug policy. From there, we got into the question of what the ultimate goal of drug policy is, And our discussion also covered stigmatization and normalization, the importance of shifting certain activities that fall on police currently onto other organizations, and we wrap up with asking Scott what he's most hopeful about moving forward in the context of drug policy. So without further ado, here is the interview with Scott. Thanks so much for joining today. To start us off, do you mind just mentioning your name and title?
0: Yeah, well, thanks for having me. My name is Scott Cecil. I suppose the only official title I have is I'm a city, local city council person. So technically the title is The Honorable Council Member Scott B. Cecil. And uh, aside from that, I work as a freelance nonprofit professional and consultant where I do everything from policy work, policy analysis, fundraising and development assistance, and also consent and conduct and anti-racist work as well. So you know, sort of run the gambit of the nonprofit uh, realm at this point in my career.
1: Yeah. And what got you excited to work in the realm of policy and more drug reform policy specifically?
0: Well, I've always been fascinated by policy, even as a a young child. Um, Politics and policy and the way that policy affects people's lives is always something that we talked about in my household growing up. So it's always been a part of my life. I didn't realize that that was somewhat unusual until I reached adulthood and realized that a lot of people don't have those conversations or at least some number of them don't. So I've always had this sort of innate curiosity about democracy and about policy and about elections and that sort of thing and really public service uh, as a philosophy and I was you know not working in this realm. I was studying environmental science and got a degree in sustainability and ecological literacy but right around that time I was arrested for marijuana possession and that really got me personally involved in the policy struggle that is fighting back against the drug war. And so I've been on that journey for about ten years now,
1: yeah. I know for me, my uh, say candid moment there, yeah, I remember in undergrad, I also got arrested in New York City for for possess or for i guess public usage. Um but yes, it's interesting how uh, just how personal it is for some people. And then I know in speaking to others, it is a purely, they see the wrong sort of in society and are coming at it ob- objectively. So it's interesting to see the different paths people take. But what have been some of the the personal uh, or the projects you've worked on along the way since you've gotten interested in the world of policy reform?
0: Wow, that's a long answer. So I'll try to speak <laughs> broadly. But um, of course, so I was in, in the state of Arizona when I had my cannabis arrest. So I was the passenger in a traffic stop and didn't know my rights and also didn't understand the nature of the harsh penalties of cannabis laws in the state of Arizona, which is a, a felony to have any amount of marijuana. Um, so it, for example, in my case, I had about $10 worth of marijuana or li- less than half a gram. And that, is, that was a class six felony in the state of Arizona. And that's been true up until, you know, just about a month ago, a month and a half ago. Arizona voters, as, as I know you know and your listeners will know, legalized cannabis uh, through a ballot initiative. But even though there has been medical cannabis in Arizona since 2010, it's still been a felony for any amount of cannabis in that state up until now. And it's not the only state in the country. South Carolina, I believe, is one. There may be others. I'm forgetting off the top of my head. But because I found myself suddenly... Uh, in this nightmare scenario where I could be facing a, you know, actually two felonies because it's also a felony to have a resonated pipe, which I did also have in my backpack, so I found myself potentially facing multiple felonies. The maximum penalty for each of those was up to five thousand dollar fine and a year in jail. And Arizona is also one of the states where you lose your voting rights if you're a convicted felon, and you have to do you know, jump through a bunch of hoops, essentially, to be able to get those restored. So I just found myself in this nightmare scenario where I was, you know, potentially going to be branded a felon, branded a criminal, potentially could lose my voting rights, potentially could lose, you know, scholarship opportunities and housing and just so many other things, simply because I didn't lie to a police officer about what was in my backpack. Um, And so that got me really involved in anti-drug war stuff. So I started lobbying at the local and state level in the state of Arizona. And because I was a returning student at the time, I got involved in an organization called Students for Sensible Drug Policy, which I believe your listeners are familiar with and I know you're familiar with. And that actually brought me here to the D.C. area where I've lived for about six years because I worked for that organization. So when I worked at SSDP, I was involved in just about anything you can think of in terms of domestic policy. So I worked directly with student leaders on different campuses across the U.S. on everything from multiple different levels of policy. So everything from what's happening at the level of your dorm, what's the policies that your RA has to adhere to when it comes to alcohol and other drugs, what's happening at your campus level, what's happening in your city, town, or county, what's happening at your state, what's happening at the federal level. And then, of course, we also worked on international issues at the Commission on Narcotic Drugs and other bodies within the U.N. So I've had the wonderful opportunity to be involved in policy initiatives and campaigns at every single level of government. And then now that I've been fortunate enough to be elected as a local elected official, I was elected to the city council in Mount Rainier, Maryland, which is a small city right on the border of Washington, D.C. and Maryland in Prince George's County, Maryland, And I was elected in May of 2019 to a four-year term. So my focus, aside from the consulting work that I do professionally, in terms of policy work, now I'm looking at what can I do at the municipal level. So everything from various ordinances and things like decriminalization through a lowest law enforcement priority, which I know we'll talk about a little bit later in the interview. So that's my focus now. But it's been informed by having the again the wonderful opportunity to work at on policy and campaigns at every level of government and and anything in between.
1: Yeah, and I mean, just I the the fact that it was for such a minuscule amount that in no way, in any shape or form, can be argued that you're dealing, you're this, you're like it's clearly for personal and. That it can be a double felony charge, whereas like I just because I happen to be in New York City and not Arizona and I was smoking a joint in the park when I was 20 and I got arrested in the process of doing that. But I was able to, by paying a $900 fine, uh, pretty much have a fifth degree misdemeanor. And just the fact that there is such discrepancy with zero logic in it in my opinion, is one of the reasons that you know people should care about the MORE Act and thinking about these kind of questions at a federal level. We need these to be logical and and not unnecessarily putting burden on people. And that should be across the board, not just a, a pure state by state where if someone wants to be draconian, they can be.
0: Well, let me say two things in response to that. I will say too, sure, it may be obvious to anyone that I was not selling cannabis because of the small amount that I had on me was obviously for personal use, which it was. But I would go so far as to say, even if I had been selling cannabis, I still don't think that the punishment, quote unquote, was appropriate. Not only do I think that punishment would have been too harsh for, you know, selling what is basically a harmless substance to any consenting adult that chooses to ingest it. But beyond that, it became very clear to me that the purpose for me being injected into the criminal justice system. And actually, I want, to, I want to think about that differently. Rather than me being put into the criminal justice system, the way I actually view it now is that Arizona was infusing the criminal punishment system into my life, right? It wasn't anything that I was doing. So what was their purpose for doing that? So what was the purpose of Maricopa County and the state of Arizona being concerned with my personal substance use as 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 it concerns to cannabis? it didn't it became very clear to me very quickly that it didn't have anything to do with the substance that i was using the process that i went through was essentially a form of economic oppression it was an economic extraction so not only was i facing felony charges if i didn't pay you know exorbitant court fines and legal fees that were you know came along with everything having to appear in court multiple times losing income because of not being able to work and all of that But I I had to be on probation. So I had to pay a monthly fine in order to be on probation. And I also had to submit to mandatory drug screenings. I had to call a phone number every day for 12 months, including on uh, not on the weekends, Monday through Friday. I had to call a phone number and it was an automated number. And each day they would list off a list of colors. And if they said my color, which was maroon, then I would have to report to a drug testing facility by 7 p.m. that day to submit to a urinalysis screening, to be tested for all substances, including legal substances like alcohol. So even though I was, you know, 29, year, 28, 29 years old at the time, uh, I wasn't even able to drink alcohol if I had wanted to do that because of what I was going through. And I'm not sure if I mentioned this already, but I didn't, it was, wasn't only that I had to pay a monthly fee to be on probation. I also had to pay for the drug screenings. So I actually had to go down to part-time as a student for two semesters so that I could get a second job just to pay for the court fines and the probation fees and the drug testing fees. So, you know, and I I took up space. I had to do 24 hours of drug education counseling. And so not only was I being um, attacked, essentially, by the state economically, but I was also taking up space in very scarce public resources. That could have been going to someone who actually did have a substance use disorder that wasn't getting any treatment. So it was clear to me that there was really nothing to do with that process that had to do with cannabis and my use of it. It really felt more like an economic extraction and just a waste of resources um, for everybody involved, except for, by the way, the private company that I was paying money to to drug test me. Yeah, that's just so...
1: (sighs) In my mind, that's such a clear example of everything that could be wrong with policy and all the wrong incentives and all the wrong underlying logic. And... I also just to be clear of my own views, I, I by no means meant my my comment on you you had enough to not be uh, to clearly not be a uh, dealing to to imply that even if you had some more that should change the calculus there. It was much more of like that is the pos- the most innocuous version of that possible. Uh, but i I totally agree of just how egregious it is that for what, we're going on five decades now of just these policies. I mean, really, with cannabis, you can argue in the 30s, they started getting so motivated by factors that are not anything but moralistic. And so I guess if we, if we take a moment to even think of, well, what is the goal of having policy around substances, whether it's cannabis specifically or around any other uh, substance that people use, what do you see as kind of the goal of effective policy when it comes to drugs?
0: That's an excellent question, because I think even for folks who might agree with, with someone like you and I, that the war on drugs is a failure, that the war on drugs is is a net negative on society, I think a lot of those folks would say, well, sure, I agree with decriminalizing drug possession and helping people who are uh, suffering from substance use disorder, but they wouldn't necessarily agree with us that we shouldn't arrest quote-unquote drug dealers. And so that's really why I brought that up um, during the last answer was because I think that is really that's becoming the battlefront more than saying is the drug war is drug prohibition good or bad. I think the vast majority of people understand that drug prohibition's not working. So I think the conversation right now, it's it's incumbent upon those of us who work in this realm to really frame the conversation in a way that pushes things forward. There's another component here. I know I'm straying away from your question a little bit, but one of the very important things about um, Thinkers in this space, like Michelle Alexander with her book, The New Jim Crow, which I'm, I'm sure your listeners are familiar with, even if they haven't read it. One of the things that that book really unlocked for millions of people, and I would even include myself among them, is you know, we often use this rhetoric, and I just said it a moment ago, that the drug war is a total failure, it's a disaster, it's not working. And I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't continue to point that out, but one of the things that her book helped me realize is that the drug war is actually a total success. It depends on what you're referring to. If, if you're referring to the stated policy goals of the drug war, which, I, which are sort of hard to understand, but it seems to me that the stated goals behind the war on drugs is to reduce drug use and to reduce the prevalence of drugs and the, the access that people have to drugs. So by that measure, it's a total failure because it hasn't worked. And indeed, we've gone the opposite direction by any measure related to those things that I just said. But when you really look at what the actual purpose of the drug war is, I would argue and others would argue, thanks to folks like Michelle Alexander brilliantly laying this out in her book, is that the drug war has been a total success if what you're measuring is how effective it's been at advancing systems of oppression. Which uh, you know have been with our country and with our society since the very beginning. So I would say the drug war is very successful at economic oppression. You know, I shared my personal story about how that applies to me, but it's oppression on so many different levels: economic oppression. You know, it it's, it's it ties together with with oppressive systems related to education, related to housing, related to bodily autonomy, related to the patriarchy, related to enforcing racial hierarchy by the way that we target specific communities, especially communities of color, especially Black communities of color, and especially men among Black communities. So it's a very successful in that it has succeeded in targeting specific groups for state-sanctioned oppression. Now, having said all that, did I actually answer your question?
1: <laughs> well, you answered, I think, a really important point in the fact of what... What does it seem as though the policies that have been in place, at least since kind of Nixon officially declared the war on drugs, or arguably since Harry Anslinger and others really started putting in uh, versions of prohibition in the teens into the 30s, you know, the stated policy goals don't match up with what seems to be optimized for in terms of the actual actions. And I know another book that came to mind as I heard you speaking was Drug War Capitalism by Don Well, I'm forgetting her last name. But uh, in her book, she also uh, mentions that specifically in the context of the U.S. Uh, Mexican aspect of uh, the drug war. You know, if you look at it from that perspective, there were massive economic incentives to put forward the kind of policies that went in place. And if you look at who made money on the back of that, there there were clearly other things happening aside from oh well, drugs are bad, so less people should use drugs. Uh, and there were clearly other forces pulling. And I know one book that I'm currently reading right now is Weed the People by Bruce Barcott, I believe is how you pronounce his name. And, I mean, you don't just have to turn to this book. I mean, just pull up any quote from Richard Nixon officially talking to his advisors on recorded on tape. You know, it's not secondhand sources. It, it was so clear the moralistic components that they put in in addition to very intentionally targeting minority communities they didn't like and the quote-unquote hippies and lefties who they just saw as between minorities and those groups that they were totally undermining the state. And it was just this pure set of action and policy laid out to negatively affect uh, those groups and disproportionately minority groups as opposed to to the quote-unquote lefties. So, I don't know, it just seems that if you dig into the history any amount, it seems unavoidable to see how perverse the initialist incentives and desires were in establishing these laws.
0: You're right that they were very explicit about what they were trying to accomplish by naming drugs, quote, public enemy number one, which is almost exactly 50 years ago um, in 1970 is when the Controlled Substances Act was passed. Um, You know, your question did bring something up for me that I think is worth sharing with your audience. So, you know, my stated goal when it comes to drug use and when it comes to substance use disorder, well, there's a few things to unpack here. Obviously, not everyone who uses name the substance has a substance use disorder. So not everyone who drinks alcohol is suffering from alcoholism for example that dynamic applies to any other substance not everyone who is using cocaine has substance use disorder not everyone who's using cannabis ha- has a substance use disorder not everyone who's using fer- uh excuse me fentanyl or or heroin has a substance use disorder and i think that is a common misconception about substances that are not alcohol and tobacco and maybe cannabis to a certain degree that i think we really need to have better conversations around but if your stated goal is that you want fewer people to use a potentially dangerous substance, there actually are success stories in our society being successful at this, but we didn't do it by pursuing the drug war model. So the best example of this is tobacco. So I'm almost 39 years old. I was born in 1982. According to the CDC, in 1982, about 40% of adult Americans... Smoked cigarettes regularly or semi regularly. By 2010, so less than 30 years later, that number was below 20%. And I'm sure it has continued to fall since then. I'm sorry that I don't know off the top of my head. But it's probably in the teens. You know, somewhere between 15 and 20% of adult Americans currently consume tobacco products on a regular basis. So that means just in my lifetime, which is only you know, hopefully about halfway over, based on on life expectancy. In just half a lifetime, we've more than cut in half the rate of adults in our country that use tobacco products, which are obviously can be exceptionally dangerous. If you smoke cigarettes regularly and do so for an extended period of time, you're almost statistically guaranteed to have health problems, including potential fatal health problems, right? That is not a secret. So what happened? How did we have this, what I would call a success story, in reducing the potential harm for the greatest number of people possible when it comes to tobacco? Well, we did that without arresting a single person. We didn't arrest anyone. We didn't put anyone in jail. We didn't specifically over-police or target people who were using tobacco what we did instead is we had honest conversations about the potential risks of using that substance and we held the purveyors and the manufacturers of that product accountable for their actions both for covering up how dangerous their product was but also insisting that they contribute financially for paying for the damages done to society by that substance, including the disastrous cost associated with health problems, associated with smoking. So for people who who struggle to think of a non-punitive model that will actually address the harms and actually reduce the number of people who are using a substance, I think Tobacco Products illustrates perfectly clear a model that we could pursue with any other substance. Now, I think we should actually go farther than that and be very explicit about the types of harm reduction that we're employing. We could talk about that more in a moment if you'd like. I know you've had other episodes on harm reduction, so I would simply refer your listeners to that but i just wanted to really pin down and plant that flag where your listeners can see it that when you look at the recent history of tobacco it gives a very very um, clear model of how to pursue societal level harm reduction for a substance that is wildly dangerous without having to be punitive Um, one thing i will there is one factor by the way, and I'm so sorry for filibustering Eugene. There's one other factor with, with tobacco that I didn't mention that's worth mentioning that I think is very complex and that is worth more conversations. And I'm not going to pretend to have the answer here because I don't. But one of the other components about that, that I think led to the a less a lower prevalence of people smoking tobacco of adults smoking tobacco was that it became less socially acceptable. It's no longer acceptable to smoke really indoors anywhere even even at home or even if you're whether you're if you're a guest in someone's home or you're in a public space you're probably Eugene old enough to I think you're a little younger than me but you're probably also old enough to remember when you could smoke cigarettes in restaurants and fast food restaurants yeah. and movie theaters and mm-hmm. you might you might be at a a guest at a dinner party and sm- spark up a cigarette or you might be at a house party and smoke a cigarette indoors i don't see people really ever doing that anymore and so I'm I just I, I I want to learn more about what piece that like social acceptability of the substance plays into harm reduction, because I think we tend to misdeploy that social acceptance, right? And it be it's very easy for that to swing too far the other way and become stigmatization. And I think that is one of the reasons that we have so much trouble addressing the opiate and the opioid crisis. It's because of how dangerously stigmatized though, you know, crack cocaine is another one, because they're so dangerously stigmatized that the the social piece of harm reduction has been corrupted to be stigmatization. And I think we have to fix that in order to reduce the harms of those substances the same way that we've done it with tobacco. I hope that makes sense.
1: Oh, absolutely. No. And those are some very, very important points. And, you know, just to, to provide some general context, uh, you know, I'm sure anyone who's tuning into this podcast has heard in some version or other, has heard media portray what we're dealing with now as the quote-unquote opioid crisis. And, you know, there's no question that there's an overdose a crisis in the last 20 years from the perspective of there's a lot more happening. I believe the the 2018 numbers peaked somewhere uh, in the 70,000 range across all substances. Meanwhile, the on average, we lose 95,000 people a year in the US alone to alcohol-related deaths, and it's pushing a, half a million in terms of smoking-related deaths. And to your point, the stigma is what separates those two where you can absolutely villainize and make it, you know, the the fault of the person who's using the substance in the much smaller column of people dying from what are currently considered illegal substances, Uh, and then when you think of something like cannabis when there's no directly related, uh, or I don't know about no in terms of long-term health complications, but almost none, versus now the stigma around smoking is that, well, if you do it outside and you're whatever, you're an adult. You get to decide to give yourself potential complications from that and join the half a million people you're dying that way. So it is just so shocking to see. And I, I, again, I don't actually know the answer here, but it would be very interesting to hear if the public court trials of knowing that big tobacco was misleading users, etc. Did that somehow help? Was it the sheer body count? I I, I don't even know. And I'll, I'll, I'll try to I'll brainstorm with you offline in terms of who are some potential guests we can uh, talk to, to, to try to figure that one out. But um, yeah, that is just such a fascinating point in terms of just how how intensely the stigma around usage and who is a quote unquote user completely changes the the dynamics of thinking through the repercussions and whether or not society should care about what's happening to these people
0: the only thing i'll add thank you for all of that the only thing i'll add is the other insidious thing about tobacco that i think so yes i think it was the body count but in addition to that when you think about a cig- when you so if, Eugene, if you picture a cigarette smoker in your own mind, you're probably not picturing an elderly person, right? And there's a reason for that, because most smokers die before they become elderly. And so the other insidious thing about tobacco was not only did the purveyors know how deadly their product was, because they understood how deadly it was, they knew that in order for their business model to survive, they had to target younger people, to use their substance. Otherwise, their user base would, I don't don't know if user base is the right term here, but their users of their product, their consumers are going to die off. And so I think that concerted targeting of young people was really probably one of the major factors that swung us in a different direction when it came to the prevalence of tobacco use.
1: Absolutely. And I mean, if, if for whatever reason, any any listener thinks we're getting slightly conspiratorial in saying that, I mean, just look at the business strategies of any big tobacco company since these social trends that Scott has spoken about have taken place. And they're massively investing in targeting younger populations just elsewhere in the world where they can bully regulators and kind of get what they want done. So it, it seems like there there's irrefutable evidence around everything that's kind of just been said in that regard.
0: I will smuggle in a personal thing here and say I'm I am also a former cigarette smoker, um, and it's funny I was actually just thinking about this yesterday. I can't even pinpoint when I stopped smoking cigarettes. So my cigarette use journey wasn't one where I f- I one day was like I'm quitting and then I just quit for forever. It didn't happen that way for for a variety of reasons that it's that are even hard for me to pinpoint myself. I simply gradually stopped using tobacco. And now I've gotten to a point where even the thought of using tobacco uh, makes me feel a little ill. And so I'm not even really sure. I can't even describe to you the model of tobacco cessation that I employed that has been successful. But I think the biggest thing for me was I never thought of it as I am a smoker and now I'm a non-smoker. I just view it as I now have, I now know more And I'm able to have a healthier relationship to this substance. So once I stopped putting the pressure on myself of, if I ever smoke a cigarette again, that means I failed, that was the thing that allowed me to be successful, was I was able to accept, hey, you know what, there actually is a way to use tobacco safely. And it's all about your moderation. If you use tobacco every day, it then becomes part of your diet. And that's when, whether you're talking about tobacco, cannabis, opioids, psychedelics, you name the substance, I think... If From the standpoint of an individual person who may decide to use any substance, not even quote-unquote drugs, cheeseburgers, right, Big Macs, sugary sodas, if it becomes regular and therefore becomes part of your diet, that's when you potentially run into harms. I think that if you're—and I'm painting with very broad strokes here, Eugene. I don't want to suggest that no substance is ever dangerous if you only use it sometimes. I'm not saying that. I'm simply saying if you are on a journey with whatever substance which of course everyone always is um the way to determine for yourself if your use is becoming a problem is whether or not it's part of your diet and and I think answering that yes or no question first kind of informs how to move forward I hope that's helpful information
1: Yeah and one thing I would I would love to get your opinion on as uh, as we kind of pivot to the topic of of cannabis uh, legislation in this country for a moment is that, you know, in general, I feel as though people who are not paying attention to these discussions at all around legalization or at the very least decriminalization, you know, they might get this image that if it's if um, cannabis is legalized, that means any store I go into, there's cannabis everywhere on the shelves. And, you know, obviously, the, the legal and regulatory framework around it is very different than that. But I guess to, to start, what, where do you see some of the very important components from the planning of what's kind of necessary for well thought out legislation? And given what was just stated, you know, what kind of emphasis should there be on the health component, right? And the idea of not forcing people into any kind of criminal uh, prison pipeline, but much more into the public health domain where those kinds of questions can be grappled with.
0: Yeah, it's it's very nuanced, right, when it comes to cannabis, because obviously cannabis is also considered a medicinal substance in its own right. And m- the majority of states in the United States and a lot of other countries around the world actually have state-sanctioned, highly regulated medical cannabis programs. I mean, um, the state of Oklahoma has some crazy number, like 900, uh, actually, I think it's over a thousand now dispensary licenses they've issued. Um, in Oklahoma, we're in a very conservative state. Um, so I just wanted to, to pinpoint that, that with cannabis, I, I sort of tend to talk about cannabis a little bit differently than a lot of other substances, not only because it's in a different place policy-wise, but because it's also been medicalized, for lack of a better way of putting it. And so it's it's interesting because we're seeing a similar process happen with certain psychedelic substances that their medicinal benefits are either being discovered or have been known for a long time and have been suppressed. And it's it becomes a different conversation, I think, when there's a medicalization component. Okay, but when it comes to cannabis policy, I think it's very important to think of it Along the lines of ending cannabis, particularly at the federal level, ending cannabis prohibition is the goal rather than, quote unquote, legalizing cannabis. The The number one issue is we need to end federal cannabis prohibition. And so the exciting thing about the MORE Act, which I know your listeners have heard about in other episodes, at the time you and I are recording this, it's mid-December, so who knows if the Senate has voted on the MORE Act yet. But if it has, then that means we, it looks like we're very likely headed toward the descheduling of cannabis, removing it from the Controlled Substances Act of 1970, and effectively ending federal cannabis prohibition. I think ending prohibition is a little different than legalizing because legalizing and setting up a formal market for the cultivation, processing, and distribution of a substance is, is a, the reason that I, I make the distinction between legalization and prohibition is because if you simply end prohibition and decriminalize a substance, you still have a black market. And one of the things that people don't want, that most people seem not to want, is to have quote unquote, a black market for cannabis. And I hope that should, that applies to any other substance. So in terms of policy, I just I, I know I'm repeating myself now, but I think it's important to focus on the difference between ending prohibition and legalization. And unfortunately, it's a different conversation depending on which substance you talk about. I say, unfortunately, because I think there's there's sort of a universal approach for whatever substance, which is legalization and regulation, but not everyone agrees with that. So... I'm rambling now, so I'm going to stop, Eugene, and let you let you rein me back in a little bit.
1: Yeah, no, I wanted to ask a follow-up there in terms of, you know, you use the term sort of ending prohibition versus legalization. In in the way that you're thinking of the term of ending prohibition, are you using that synonymously with decriminalization, or do you see more nuance between those two terms?
0: I don't see too much nuance between those two terms. I don't want to say they mean exactly the same thing, but I think essentially they do. Um, removing the criminal component from substances is key, right? That's the, the, the drug war is essentially criminalization. But the problem is, so I'm, I'm putting on my local elected official hat here. One of the problems though that I run into and uh, though that I've encountered when talking about it that way is that it's something I, I pointed to a little bit earlier in the interview, but a lot of folks might be with you and they say, yeah, we definitely shouldn't be arresting people for cannabis, but I still think we should go after cartels that smuggle cannabis. And I still think we should go after street-level drug dealers who are trying to sell it to my teenage daughter or whatever, right? And so sometimes they don't connect the dot that that means what they really want then is legalization. Um, When you look back at the uh, cannabis legalization campaign in Colorado in 2012, the communications director for that campaign went on to become one of my bosses, somebody that I worked for for four years. And one of the things that she used to say all the time, and she was on TV all the time that year talking about the ballot initiative, Listeners will remember that Colorado and Washington were the first states to legalize cannabis eight years ago in 2012. One of the things that she always said and that that campaign always said was our purpose for this campaign is to take cannabis off the street corner and put it behind the counter of a licensed business that's going to card people and ask for whatever, right? So that was explicitly a conversation about legalization, right? But we're not there when it comes to, say, heroin, for example right we're we, we're not in a place where people say so a lot of people would agree we shouldn't arrest heroin users if they have a substance use disorder but there are far fewer people who would say therefore the solution is to legalize heroin so that so that we have controls on purity potency and dosage so that people actually know what they're taking which reduces the likelihood that they're going to experience an accidental or even fatal overdose right so i'm hoping that we can i think part of our work is to advance the conversation around substances generally so that they're not being talked about in a different way. Because the policy result of that is we now see ourselves in a situation where we're going substance by substance, state by state, legalize or decrim depending on the substance. And it's this patchwork of policies that, while does demonstrate progress, I think is not ultimately the solution to ending the drug war.
1: Yeah, and that's the thing in my mind, you know, going back to the question we were discussing earlier in terms of what is the actual point of any of this policy in the first place? If the actual goal is to just have to minimize the amount of harm that exists as a result of this thing just existing in the universe, because, you know, the last 40, 50 years of laws have shown that it doesn't matter whether or how intensely you enact the prohibition, chances are people are still going to find a way to interact with and use those substances. If the actual goal is to minimize the harm... Then we have to start applying a ton of policies, which may seem very uncomfortable for people who are not, you know, folks who are uh, that steeped in the literature and the evidence that's already seen from other countries around, you know, what safe injection sites can do and what providing a safe supply can do and what just all these other components that might seem scary for someone And again, coming back to the stigma, that the only version in their mind of a drug user that exists is someone who tried a substance once, became hooked for the rest of their life, and is now this kind of scary uh, person negatively affecting society when it's, you know, there's more and more research showing that it doesn't matter how hard the substance is, addiction rates rarely break 20% of users and, you know, all these other pieces of information that are just neglected in the mainstream conversations on these topics. And, and that's just such a shame because it, it just perpetuates the stigma. And I guess to, to pivot to a specific question from that uh, and, you know, focusing in on the term of prohibition, you actually have your, your own podcast called Prohibited. So do you mind just uh, doing a quick plug for your own podcast, but then really answering the question of why did you launch it? What's your hope in running that podcast?
0: Yes. Thank you so much for bringing that up. As you say, I'm, I'm used to being on the other side of the microphone. So uh, I appreciate you bringing it up because I'm, I'm so bad at promoting it because I'm not used to being a guest on a podcast that I might have forgotten. So yes, thank you again for bringing it up. I do host a podcast called Prohibited, a podcast about prohibition. Listeners can find that at prohibitedpodcast.com. I also host a second podcast now called The Outlaw Report, which is your source for credible cannabis news in and around Washington, D.C. So this is mainly about cannabis policy in the D.C., Virginia, Maryland metropolitan area, um, but also federal policy, since, of course, we're right here at the seat of the nation's capital here in the District of Columbia. But So I started Prohibited about two years ago, and I was inspired by uh, another podcast called This Week in Drugs that... um is was my favorite podcast for a while. They did a few seasons, and then when it went off the air, I decided we needed to fill this void of awesome drug policy podcasts. So I started a podcast called Prohibited, but the purpose was not only to focus on drug prohibition. My vision is that the body of work of Prohibited will help um, forward and advance a conversation around the concept of prohibition more broadly. So... As I've engaged in this policy work around drug policy reform and drug prohibition for the last decade or so, you often, you know, folks like myself would often say things like, well, prohibition never works. Prohibition's a total failure. But when you dig down a little bit deeper, I think that's not true. I, I think drug prohibition is a total failure, but I don't know that it's a failure to prohibit styrofoam or to prohibit single use plastics or to look at the prohibition of fossil fuels when we're facing a global climate catastrophe. So it's clear to me that the conversation around whether or not prohibition does or does not work is much more nuanced than a yes or no question. And so uh, I'm hoping and have been exploring things beyond drug prohibition, sex, the prohibition of sex work, the prohibition of gambling, um, and other forms of prohibition just to ha- advance that conversation a little bit more broadly about why we seek prohibitive policies when it comes to the public domain and when it comes to policy at all levels of government.
1: And I know one of your recent episodes, or at least as of, as of the time we're recording, was actually kind of a digest of what happened in some of the, the drug-related ballot questions back in November 2020. And I highly suggest listeners go back and listen to that episode if you're interested in hearing that. But I wanted to get your personal opinion uh, on one specific uh, ballot in, in Oregon that passed. Uh, and I, I don't remember if it was in DC was also, if it was a ballot measure, if that was just separately passed, but pretty much the decriminalization of drugs overall in, in Oregon and the legalization, um, of magic mushrooms. So I, I wanted to just get your sense on what your thoughts are. Uh, were you surprised when that came through?
0: Not at all. Not at all surprised. Um, I may have been surprised by the margin of victory for some of these various ballot initiatives and we can definitely drill down on some of those results if you'd like to. I, I would I will mention in addition to going to prohibitedpodcast.com, the podcasts, both podcasts are available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, so feel free to search there if it's easier for you to listen. And don't forget to leave a rating or review to help other listeners find us. And please do that for this this podcast as well, wherever you're listening. Um Okay. In terms of the ballot initiatives, Eugene, thank you for asking me. So I was not surprised by any of the results. I'm actually going to rewind to 2019 and then catch us up to now, if that's all right. So as your listeners do go, decide to check out some prohibited episodes. Actually, we did an episode in the spring of 2019 probably March of 2019, if I'm remembering correctly, with uh, the campaign manager for the Denver Psilocybin Initiative, psilocybin being magic mushrooms. So Denver was actually the first municipality in the U.S. to decriminalize the possession and propagation of psilocybin mushrooms through a decriminalized ballot initiative. But it's actually what's called a lowest law enforcement priority because Denver doesn't have a city law that makes magic mushrooms Illegal, right? But there are state and federal laws that outlaw that substance. So Denver didn't actually have a city ordinance to repeal. So what they did is they did a ballot initiative at the city level, the municipal level, to make the enforcement of laws around psilocybin mushrooms the lowest law enforcement priority for the Denver Police Department. So essentially, what the Denver police are saying is we're going to make enforcement of this law our lowest priority. And that approach which is a form of decriminalization, actually has its roots in cannabis policy. So beginning in the 1990s, before any states had legalized cannabis or even instituted medical cannabis programs, the first state to do that was California in 1996. Instead, what was happening on the front of cannabis legalization was instituting municipal-level lowest law enforcement priorities. And so now what we're seeing first with Denver in 2019. Then let's fast forward to a little bit more recent. Listeners of my podcast will know that actually the season two premiere was then with the campaign manager of the Oregon Psilocybin Initiative back in April of 2020. So as you say, that initiative passed. And then, of course, uh, taking a little side trip here, (laughs) no pun intended, the state of Oregon also decriminalized drug possession of all substances which is, which is amazing. It's fantastic. So I hope other states and hopefully the entire United States will pursue a similar model. But just sticking with psilocybin really quickly, what we've seen since Denver passed their municipal lowest law enforcement priority in May of 2019 is the cities of Oakland and Santa Cruz in California have also pursued decriminalization of what they call quote, plant-based psychedelic medicines, so psilocybin, but also other substances. And that was decrim, again, through lowest law enforcement priority. But in the cases of those two California cities, their city council approved those measures. And then as you say, Eugene, here in Washington, D.C., during the November 2020 election, voters approved by 50 points. I mean, it wasn't even close. It was about 25 per- or, Excuse me, 75% in favor and 25% opposed. So about three-fourths of voters voted to decriminalize quote-unquote plant-based psychedelic medicines, again, through decriminalization, which was a lowest law enforcement priority ordinance. So that's kind of where we are now. And my suspicion is that as we progress, more municipalities will continue to pursue lowest law law enforcement priority enforcement, just like what we saw with cannabis in the 1990s, which will then lead to state-level decriminalization measures. We've already seen that begin this year with Oregon, which then hopefully creates a domino effect similar to what we've seen with cannabis. So while I'm really excited that this is where we are, I just want to repeat something I said earlier. I think it's a mistake to only try this state-by-state, substance-by-substance incremental approach. I think that we should push as hard as we've ever pushed to completely dismantle the drug war and decriminalize and really legalize and regulate as many substances as possible as quickly as possible.
1: And I think when, at least I know when I personally imagine trying to do anything pro-supporting the end goal of changing the federal level, any kind of law on the federal level, it just automatically seems so intensely daunting. But, You know, I would also love to get your opinion as someone who is no longer just Scott B. Cecil, but the Honorable Scott B. Cecil and someone who actually is working in local government. You know, what do you see as the kind of pathways you would recommend that people who genuinely want to impact policy, what are ways that you can do that on the local level?
0: Yeah, thank you so much for asking me that, because it gives me a chance to talk about what I'm doing politically right now. So again, for anyone who's listening, I live in a city called Mount Rainier in Maryland in Prince George's County. It's right on the border of Washington, D.C. and Maryland, on the northeast side of the diamond that is the District of Columbia. So right now, what I'm working on at the municipal level is a lowest law enforcement priority for drug possession. So I think what local police departments can do, both county and municipal departments, Is Well, I guess it's it's really not the departments doing it, but what we need to do is institute lowest law enforcement priority legislation and ordinances at the municipal and county levels to allow for law enforcement agencies to essentially ignore enforcement of crimes without a victim, whether they be drug possession, whether it be sex work between consenting adults that are not being trafficked or coerced, that sort of thing. So I, I hate to use the term victimless crime, but I think the key here is if there's no victim in the crime, if there's no emergency happening, then I don't think that it's a good use of law enforcement resources. So I am part of the defund the police movement. I do believe in prison, jail, and police abolition. But I also think that it's irresponsible to do that in one fell swoop. I think there's a process. And part of that process is asking pointed questions about what the purpose of law enforcement agencies are and which laws are worth enforcing. So I think the approach here is that police, especially at the municipal level and especially in communities as small as, as the one I live in, which is about 9,000 people, less than a square mile, so a, sm- a very small city, I would even call it a town actually, is what is the purpose of our law enforcement and what is a good use of their time? So I would say anything that is not an emergency situation which poses an imminent threat to public health and safety, is not a good use of police resources, of law enforcement resources. So I think diverting funding away from law enforcement towards other areas is the key, not only to reduce the size, scope, and purview of law enforcement agencies, but to redirect their you know, their activities towards things that actually are threats to public health and safety. And I don't think that you know, drug possession is one of those. For example, there are others.
1: Yeah, and I know related to that, I've read differing accounts from across the country where local police leaders will decide to take their own view on, say, how to respond to opioid overdoses or any drug overdoses. And a lot of the times they get to make that call because they just happen to be tasked with that as opposed to another group in that area that is more health oriented and has the appropriate background and training to deal with a public health question.
0: Absolutely right, and there's an interesting dynamic when it comes to drug policy reform that really applies to almost every other area of policy activism and advocacy, and it's it's the following thing: there's an if your movement building is effective, you'll notice a, a, a long term trend, and if you're very very effective or if there's a lot of of, of momentum behind your particular movement or the broader movement that your movement building work intersects with. It may even be a rapid process, but the process is as follows. When your advocacy movement is successful, you'll start to notice that policymakers will begin to use the exact language that your movement was using in the past, whether it be months or even years or even decades in the past. So for example, you you need only go back five or seven years and listen to policymakers talk about cannabis legalization, and there was no conversation around racial equity, social equity, ownership, that sort of thing. Now, when you look at especially progressive policy leaders that write policy and law, when they talk about cannabis legalization, they always mention equity and ownership and racial equity and those things. So what folks should be looking for, no matter what movement you're involved with, is you can note one way to note how much progress you're making in terms of actual policy change is when you see policymakers begin to adopt the language that your movement has already been using. This also applies to law enforcement. And one of the, one of the negative trends, I would say, in law enforcement and its interaction with the public right now is that it, it, law enforcement is actually going the opposite direction with their rhetoric far too frequently. So here's what I mean by that. One need only go back five or seven years or really even less. And when you listen to law enforcement agencies themselves, or when you listen to the unions of law enforcement employees, they would say things like police officers are being asked to do too much. We're being asked to be babysitters, and we're asked, being asked to be social workers, and we're being asked to be substance use counselors, and we're being asked to barter and you know, negotiate neighbor disputes, and we're being asked to help people when they have uh, health crises, you know, when they're drunk in, in public, that sort of thing. None of those things that I just named are imminent threats to public health and safety. So the interesting thing is like they were right. We are asking law enforcement to do things that we shouldn't be asking law enforcement agents to do. Most of those things that I just listed off, what we actually need, or what what people in the community actually need, is not a police officer. Depending on which social issue you're talking about, they need a substance use counselor, or they need a social worker, or they need economic assistance, or housing assistance, or they need treatment for alcoholism, whatever it may be. Police officers are, not only are they not equipped and trained to do those things, I would venture to guess that no law enforcement agent goes into policing because they want to do that work. Their purpose is to enforce laws that are, that when violated are a threat to public health and safety and to protect the public good. And we ask them to do so many things that aren't related to that work. And I think step one in healing the divide between law enforcement agencies and the public at large, short of simply abolishing them is really asking ourselves very pointed questions about what their scope of responsibility is and should be. And I think that the majority of work that police are currently doing would be better suited for other personnel. And it's simply about reprioritizing where we're investing our dollars. So in the city that I live in, for example, this fiscal year, we're spending 37% of our municipal budget on the police department, which to me is, is wildly out of balance. And I know that we're not outside the norm when it comes to the portion of our budget that we allocate to law enforcement agencies, and I, I think to our detriment. Wow.
1: And so, to as we're getting towards the end of the interview, I want to kind of ask you the question of what What are you most hopeful for in the next year in 2021 uh, in terms of drug policy overall?
0: <sighs> wow, I'm you know I'm surprised I don't have like uh an immediate answer that comes to mind here because so here here's why it's dif- a difficult question to answer. Maybe I'll start there. On the one hand, if I name specific things in terms of the incremental changes that we're seeing happen, which at which I support. And I think in some cases have been wildly successful. I feel like I'm sort of restricting the scope of possibility in terms of what I think is possible so, I suppose my answer is I, I i want I want us to broadly have our end goal being completely dismantling the police state, completely dismantling, you know, the current policy regime when it comes to various substances, including the legal ones, and just really kind of rethinking the way that we allocate resources in our society. you know if if we spent just a fraction of what is currently spent on, state local and municipal police departments and then of course the federal military budget simply a fraction of that money going towards housing stability and food security and improvements to education and public health and safety and economic reparations for marginalized communities whether it be reparations uh, for black, for African Americans and Black people here in the United States, whether it be reparations, both of money, land, and economic power for indigenous communities and their descendants who are still victims of colonization and still victims of the genocide of their ancestors, I, I hope that we, as a society, really set our sights, and we, as a movement, really set our sights at addressing you know, really taking the harm reduction model for drugs and, uh, and addressing it at a societal level. One of the mistakes we make in drug policy reform and those of us who are fighting against the drug war is I think we tend to see the drug war as a piece of a larger movement. And our movement is just doing, it's, it's one piece over here, but there's this larger movement. And if we handle our piece, it helps make progress in the larger movement. And I'm not necessarily saying that that's not true. I just think that no matter what movement you're part of, whether it's drug policy reform, whether it's housing justice, environmental justice and addressing climate change, economic justice, social and economic reparations, I think that no matter which movement you're part of, if you're only pushing for change in your quote unquote, your part of the movement, I think that's a mistake. Because I, think, I don't think that that means we'll ever actually overthrow all of these other oppressive systems that are all interconnected. So whichever one of those justice-oriented movements that I just named, and there are also others I didn't name, whichever one that you view yourself as being a part of, I hope that you'll approach your work as trying to dismantle all oppressive systems rather than thinking that you should be sequestered to your corner of the movement. So I think what I'm most hopeful for is that there are more and more voices that are saying just that that we have to address the material conditions of not only marginalized communities, but the material conditions of everyone in our society, and the implications of continuing to fail to address that. I think we've now gotten to a point where it's it's going to lead to global catastrophe. Um, and that's, that's not just restricted to climate change. I think all of those other justice movements, uh, I think that global catastrophe is really the thing that we should be focused on avoiding. And Dismantling the drug war and all the oppressive oppressive systems that are tied to that is simply a small part of that movement
1: that is a beautiful sentiment to to sort of wrap up today's conversation with. And thank you again for taking the time before I let you go, though, is there anything else that you want to plug in terms of your own information where people can find out more about your work or how they can reach out to you?
0: Sure. Of course, you're welcome to follow me on social media. It's at Scott Cecil on Twitter. Um, follow me there, and uh, if we know each other, then I'll I'll share with you some of my other social media accounts. Um, in addition to that, I do um, also operate a nonprofit which I co-founded called Repair Now. We focus on criminal punishment reform, everything from expungement and record sealing to also voting rights, both for people with criminal records, people currently being held in local jails. Um, or anyone else who uh, would like to participate in the electoral process if they're an eligible voter. We work in all areas of advocacy advocacy related to that. So please go check out RepairUsNow.org to find out more information about that organization. By the time your listeners have heard this, the special elections in Georgia will have already taken place. But right now, what we're focused on in the immediate term, as I'm recording this in mid-December, is that... um, We're making sure that everyone in the state of Georgia who wants to vote and is an eligible voter has access to voting. And that includes, again, people being held in local jails. Listeners of your show will probably know that on average, about 80% of people being held in local jails have neither been convicted nor charged with a crime. They simply cannot afford cash bail. So one of the things we're working very hard to do is to make sure that as many people being held in local jails as possible who are eligible voters have access to voting during the special elections in Georgia. So uh, even if, the, if this uh, podcast, I think, will have come out after that election has taken place, if you'd like to go and chip in a few dollars to help us with that sort of work moving forward, please go check out repairusnow.org. Awesome.
1: Thank you. And again, yeah, I just really appreciate you taking the time right before uh, the holidays and just the busyness of wrapping things up. I, I really enjoyed today's conversation. Thank you. I enjoyed
0: it too. And I hope I gave you and your listeners, uh, you know, what they tuned in to, to hear. And, you know, hopefully we'll be able to do this again. Or maybe you can join me on my show in the future. Thanks for having me. Thanks for taking the time to tune in. The History of Drugs and Society
1: is produced by me, Eugene Paul. Credits on the music go to Blue Dot Sessions and to BBC Sound Effects, Splice Sounds, and Kyle's for the free audio. Feel free to reach out on Twitter at Drugs History or over email drugshistory at gmail.com. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend or rate on iTunes. Be well and speak soon.